little over a year ago, I discovered a bird that would change my life. These birds live year-round along the coasts of Florida, and that is where I first noticed them. I was walking along St. Petersburg Beach. I was right near the Don Cesar, a 90-year-old bright pink castle that is the central focal point of the city. It was built on concrete structures intentionally constructed to avoid sinking into the sand and has never lost its structural integrity despite being built completely on what was originally just a beach. Along the rest of the line where the city meets the beach are dozens of other hotels and restaurants, including one that is a personal favorite of mine called Dolphins. It's literally inches from the beach, attached to a cheap motel, and serves really good cheap fried fish. I was somewhere between this restaurant and the Don Cesar when I noticed an unusual formation of little blackbirds on the sand. I've seen a seagull nesting colony before, usually a noisy bunch of squawking white birds on the more empty strips of beachfront on the coasts, but this was not so showy. Rather, they were bushelled up in a colony of about a hundred, smaller than other coastal birds with bright orange beaks and predominantly black bodies. They made up a circular formation, and birds would occasionally launch into the sky and fly out toward the water. They would skim the bottom half of their beaks along the top of the ocean, gliding over the waves by just an inch or so. They would collect fish of many sizes and then return to their colony. Their hunting maneuver over the ocean was so surreal. They couldn't have been any closer to the crash of the waves, but they didn't flinch or dodge or move. They just skimmed. As I stared on, observing the birds in their nest, a woman jogged down the beach toward us. She wasn't in any type of uniform, just casual beach clothes and a visor. She said hello and asked where we were from. Then she asked if we knew what type of birds these were. She then went on to tell us that these were black skimmers and that this was the beginning of their nesting season and that this was an incredibly high percentage of the total population of these birds in the whole state. They are not endangered around the world, as many of them live in the Amazon River Basin in South America, but in Florida, it is likely that they will soon be labeled endangered if they stay on their current population trajectory. The blame is obviously placed on humans, specifically the coastal developments that continue to develop on our beaches. The woman was kind and informative and eager to talk. After we walked on, I couldn't stop thinking about her presence on the beach. She was sitting maybe 40 feet from the colony on a beach chair with a trio of other folks her age. She wasn't a park ranger or a lifeguard. She didn't have a uniform or a title or a badge. As far as I could tell, she was just a woman, a Floridian, who had set up watch over the little birds as they began their five-month-long nesting period. She didn't do it because she had to. She did it because she wanted to. She went back to her chair as we walked away, but she never left my mind. I needed some answers. Not just about this kind guardian, but also these birds, their unusual hunting patterns, and their dwindling numbers. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. One year ago, a month before I did the very first episode of this show, I fell in love with this little bird via an unusual encounter with a stranger on the beach. Now it's been 14 months, and at last, I have answers. First, I'd like to talk to you about our state bird. Picture in your mind what you think our state bird should be. What did you see? Was it a seagull hopping along the sand, screaming at anyone with a french fry? Was it a brown pelican, swooping low in formation, gathering a bucket of water in its voluminous beak? 
Was it one of our more simple birds, like a finch hopping along in the bushes, or a crow hanging low over the road? Was it one of our ospreys perched high above the trees in a nest looking out over the wilderness, searching for prey? For me, when I think of a Florida bird, I think of the roseate spoonbill in all of its unusual splendor. They're my favorite Florida bird, no doubt, with their varied pink layers, their singular and small heads, and their amazing beaks for which they get their name. The beaks are truly spoon-shaped, starting thin but extending to a circular formation at the tip. They sit in bushels and mangroves and squawk and fly and dive. They're simultaneously the most gorgeous bird I've ever seen and the most ugly-looking mutant creature on earth. I adore them. No matter which one you picked, I'm sure any of those birds would be considered Florida's state bird. Our actual state bird, however, almost certainly did not pop into your head. Our state bird is a highly populous little gray bird named the Northern Mockingbird, sometimes referred to as the Common Mockingbird. They're small, under a foot in length, with the ability to mimic the birdsong of other members of the Feathered Kingdom. The official document by the state says, quote, The Mockingbird sings all night long, especially under bright springtime moonlight. End quote. Now, that's very romantic sounding, but shouldn't our state bird be more... I don't know, Florida? We have a state beverage, after all, and it is orange juice. Our state animal is the Florida panther. Our state reptile is the American alligator. Our state flower is the orange blossom. These are perfect, comical with how quintessentially Florida they all are, and yet our state bird is... the mockingbird? It's not even unique to us. We have to share. The common mockingbird is also the state bird of Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas. They can be seen almost everywhere in the United States, Mexico, and the Caribbean. There is nothing about these birds that are Sunshine State. I don't blame the common mockingbird. He just wants to sing his song in the springtime moonlight, apparently. He never asked to be our state bird. But in 1927, when our state legislature decided what our bird should be, it's not like we didn't know about all of the incredible birds we have. We have flamingos on our shores, for God's sake. Poachers had already hunted down so many of our incredibly exotic birds by this point in time, so it's not like we didn't know what kind of amazing, colorful, exotic birds we had. We have one of the most biologically diverse bird populations in the country, yet for some reason, our legislators, nearly a century ago, when states across the country were officially designating state this and state that, solidified us as one of the five mockingbird states. I'll give them at least this credit. The bird song of the common mockingbird is quite beautiful. It's also certainly loud. Maybe pretty and simple was what they were looking for back in those days. A universally liked bird that every American could see and hear and then think, aw, that's nice. Imagine instead they had chosen a bird of the same size with a beak longer than the rest of its head and whose chicks eat fish the size of their whole body. They sleep flat on the ground, lay eggs in a dangerous ecosystem, and they have to race the waves to catch even a sliver of food. They're bizarre, and they're not the perfect state bird, but can you imagine? They are the black skimmers. And instead of a beautiful bird song, they sound like this.
They are members of the Tern subfamily, related distantly to other gulls and seabirds that can be seen along international coasts. Florida is home to a few of the tern family, most specifically the least terns and the royal terns. They all look relatively the same with ovular white bodies with pointy tail feathers. Their heads have sharp backs, sometimes having additional feathers on the back that give them a crown or a cap or some delicate plumage, like a mullet. Most of them have large beaks, either long enough to root through the sand and water or sharp enough to jab prey. The black skimmer looks like the odd one out, however, with a mostly black body that connects up the neck to their head. They look more like distant cousins in the penguin family than a cousin to a seagull. Their beaks are massive, half orange and half black. Their eyes have vertical pupils like a cat, which is almost completely unheard of anywhere else in the bird world. Additionally, their large lower beak is an evolutionary development that allows them to hunt along the ocean's surface. Then, they settle on the beaches, whether along the ocean or along brackish rivers and lagoons, and lay their eggs. The eggs are small, with little black speckles, and sit on the sand in bundles of three or five. The two parents watch over the egg, nesting on them for four hours at a time. It takes just under a month for an egg to hatch, and then another month for the bird to be able to fly and feed itself. Their hunting style is unique, involving the slight dipping of the tip of the bottom beak through the water, targeting a fish, and then snatching it from the sea with ease. They have relatives across the world, particularly in Africa and India, but those are more bound to inland water, building homes along the rivers. Our skimmers prefer the coasts, and their bodies are perfectly suited for it. They live their lives almost entirely by water, eat a variety of sea life, live together, protect their young, and zoom along the coasts in peace. In the middle of June, a hundred or so newly hatched baby black skimmers popped up on St. Pete Beach, surrounded by a colony of over 600 adult birds seeking to keep them safe. Around this time, an image of a black skimmer mother feeding her baby a cigarette butt lit up the news media, showing the extreme danger of pollution on the beaches. Outrage was everywhere, but pollution is not the only threat to coastal birds. The increased traffic and visitors lead to the birds often being displaced and finding unsavory shelter. This leaves them exposed to predators, easier to find for the raccoons and crows that feed on their nests. The presence of construction equipment, environmental degradation, and even oil spills can ruin their habitats and open spaces. During the BP oil spill a decade ago, nearly 300 of the birds were collected and cleaned. It's not known how many rescuers didn't find. If we don't adjust to the threat of climate change, sea levels will rise, consuming the natural sand that the skimmers and so many other species rely on. Finding perfect spots for their colonies to flourish is growing increasingly difficult. The birds need to preserve their abilities, so disturbance of their colonies forcing the birds to fly would leave the eggs exposed and the birds short on the energy they need to hunt. This is why, I now know, the woman on the beach rushed to us. She didn't know who I was or what I knew of the birds and wanted to give them the security that is so sparse. She wanted to keep me away. I understand. Why? Who was she? She was looking out for the birds, but on behalf of who? What motivated her to not only be present with these birds, but to rush away from her comfort in order to talk to me, a stranger, about black skimmers? Now, I have an answer. The Audubon Society. 
The original Audubon Society was formed in 1886 by an editor for an environmental magazine. His name was George Bird Grinnell. His middle name was actually Bird. He used the magazine to promote the society, which had been named for a painter named John James Audubon, whose book about birds in the early 19th century was monumental in the country's understanding of our feathered friends. This original Audubon, however, did not last long and soon folded. This wasn't due to a lack of interest. Rather, there were nearly 40,000 people interested in participating in bird conservation, and the meager staff at the magazine couldn't handle the volume of people. A decade later, however, a woman who was outraged by the usage of natural bird feathers in ladies' hats formed the society again in Boston. Her name was Harriet Hemingway. The main source of colorful plumage in the country was, of course, Florida, with our broad range of exotic birds. She formed the group with a number of other socialite women in her town to fight the harvesting of birds and to boycott hat makers who used them. The movement spread throughout the country in the following years. Thanks to their efforts, plume hunting was outlawed in the state of Florida within a decade, and by 1900, the Florida Audubon Society held its very first meeting in Maitland. By 1918, plume hunting was illegal across both the U.S. and Canada. Two rookeries in Florida that previously existed were now added as official Audubon sanctuaries. Now, Audubon Florida is one of the most active conservation organizations in the state. Due to our diverse number of birds and ecosystems, there is a diverse number of programs in place, and the state is managed in seven different areas. The organization has published a 32-page document detailing their goals for 2019 alone, including conserving wild spaces, keeping water cleanliness a priority, and, of course, protecting Florida's birds. One of the most spectacular things about it is how much it is simply people who are passionate about protecting the ecosystems and the birds within. On Florida's Gulf Coast, on the St. Pete Beach, that group has a name, the Tampa Bay Area Bird Wardens. Sometimes called bird stewards, these are volunteers who are trained by members of the Audubon Society to work on the beach and bird habitats, keeping them safe from trespassers and guests. The application adds, quote, interested individuals should like spending time on the beach and interacting with the public, end quote. Some of these stewards also pick up shifts on top of buildings on gravel rooftops. Many of our nesting birds, including skimmers, have settled onto roofs when the beach does not provide sufficient land. There are far less visitors, but the distance from the ocean where the birds hunt and the height from which baby birds could fall add to the risk. There's a special tool they use called a chickaboom, which can safely return one of these young birds to the top of the building and their protective families. It's not ideal. It's not perfect. But it works. I found myself on the Tampa Bay Area Bird Steward Facebook group, where the 600 members of the group share pictures, sign up for volunteer hours, update documents, and share a community about the birds. Some of these birds have green bands on their feet that allow us to track them. One woman shared a story of some of these birds and how they were trying to track them and keep them safe. Some folks share the number of different types of birds they see in different areas of the beach. They ask questions about how to handle surprise visitors, or where to dispose of certain garbage, or how to answer a question they didn't have the answer to. One of the most charming elements is the tracking of the progress of young birds. There are dozens of posts about the baby birds that have been hatched in the past two months as they start to lose their down feathers, develop their adult designs, and wade into the shallow water to snatch up meals. One woman watched as nearly 100 chicks burst from their eggs as a massive storm rolled in from the gulf with new posts nearly every single day. 
The sense of community resilience is one thing, but the true charm comes from the sense of purpose. They don't have a sense of ownership over these birds or a feeling that they're saving the world. They simply observe, protect, educate, and help out when it's needed. It's a community of individuals who willingly give up their time to keep a flock of 100 or so little birds safe. They do it because it's the right thing to do. Up until a year ago, I had a complicated relationship with Florida's animals. That's not to say that I didn't care for them or feel connected, but I would value some of our animals over others. I loved bears and alligators, but I didn't care much for raccoons and possums. I knew nothing about our panthers, our boars, our seabirds, our tortoises. The biggest conflict I had was with our deer. In general, I found them to be frightening, and I have for nearly a decade. It's a running joke amongst my friends that I am petrified at the sight of one of these creatures. Even people who barely know me know this fact about me. I could never really pinpoint why, what really scared me about them, until recently. Something about them feels truly wild to me, like a wild animal who sees me, a human being, as a predator who could hunt them. That feeling, that place in the world, feels unnatural to me, though it couldn't be more natural. Bears will hide from you, gators barely acknowledge your existence, boars will run right up to your car, but deer are genuinely, truly terrified of you. That strips away any idea that you're some highly intelligent being. You are really just an animal to them. But in the last year, I have found that fear further and further from my mind. When I came across deer in Ocala, they watched me rattle by. No concern. When a key deer darted across the road while I was searching for Flagler, my heart didn't race. We watched each other for a moment before going our separate ways. I was shocked that I didn't feel the usual heart-pounding, brain-shrinking panic. Suddenly, and fully, the fear was gone. For so long, the deer sat in this primal state that they were this unknowing nemesis, but now, it's gone. They're not unnatural, or terrifying, or threatening. In the end, the threatening thing is me, and us. Humanity, eating up resources and hurting the only place we can call home. One year ago, I felt something extend to these little birds, tying strings around their feet and connecting them to myself. If they were gone, a piece of me would be gone too. The bird stewards must feel the same way, like a part of themselves has been bound to these members of Florida's nature permanently. It cannot be undone. We are tied to our skimmers, and our bears, and our panthers, and our fish, raccoons, boars, gators, and our deer. No matter what, we have to do something. We have to help them, because we can save them. So I made a podcast. The bird stewards watch them and take photographs and record their movements and educate others. State park rangers advocate for the protection of the animals. Volunteers hike the trails and clean up garbage. All that is true, but that's not the question. The question is, what will you do?
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please scroll down and leave a quick rating or a review. This is a little show made by just me, and the best way for it to grow is for it to be reviewed by you. Also, consider sharing it with someone who will enjoy it. I cannot tell you how important that is. You can find and share the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can also send me an email at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I'm preparing for this show's second season, and I would love to hear what you want to hear. All of the songs used in this episode are from Lobo Loco. You can find all the titles for those songs, along with all of the links used in the research in the description below. Next week is the one-year anniversary, a very special episode that you are seriously going to love. There will be some amazing stories, some fascinating updates, and some announcements for the future of the show. Tune in one week from today, next Friday. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, get yourself a reusable water bottle, and drink more water. Have a good weekend. 